And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with very special guest Cecilia Holland on the Coot Street Podcast. And there is the fade out again, because this is, this is, Cecilia, this is Jonathan's imitation of Kermit the Frog, we've been told. <laughs> well, it's very effective. I, I can't imagine anything can follow that with any kind of pizzazz. Well, I'm, 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 I'm glad you... Anyway. I'm glad we could finally get you on here, um, because ever since, every time you show up at a group of writers, and I've told you this many times, Cecilia, you find yourself full of in, in rooms full of fans and readers that you didn't know you had, which yeah, is yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah, it's I love them, I love the, the it really, it's probably it's like being a princess for a weekend. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that I think is uh, under, uh, I just want to talk about a little bit about uh, the relationship between fantasy and history, because what we're going to start talking about in a minute is, is the new Guy Gabriel Kay novel. Um, but, and he uses, I don't know, history as a template for fantasy or something like that, or maybe he uses fantasy as a template for history. But one of the things I always want to plug is that um, uh, your last series of four novels, the Corbin Loosestrife series, is also a historical novel, which sort of turns into fantasy by the fourth volume. And I don't think enough fantasy readers know about that series. Well, it was a weird thing. I, I really um, I really enjoyed it, but it really got out of hand. And um, it kept going places I didn't expect it to go. And, you know, and getting it was a lot of fun, but I, I, I uh, uh, it wrote me, not the other way around. It was a very strange experience, totally, you know. I really like some of the characters. And in the last book, that that we're roaring along, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, Canute the Great takes over the whole book. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. If your characters won't listen to you, you just have to follow no, the lead, no. I guess. <laughs> and the trouble with fantasy is that they are allowed to do that. I mean, in there's no... The history, you're unhinged. You know, you're out there floating around. And in, in, in the case of the Corbin books, literally floating around. <laughs> Well, and, he was floating um, around. Yeah, they do a lot of floating. <laughs> but um, it, it just was such a... It, uh, it just spun out by itself. It was very, almost scary. It took me months to decompress. <clears throat> well, it, the, the last volume was just about a pure fantasy novel. And uh, one of the odd things about it, the only other thing I can think of that's comparable, except in science fiction, was Stephen Baxter's series of four novels about the Roman Empire in England, which begin as historical fiction and end up as science fiction. But the change happens somewhere in those four volumes, and you can't exactly pinpoint it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I just, I was trying to do it pretty much all along, but it got better. I get better at it. Or it got better at me. I don't know. It, it got more, I got more comfortable with the thing, and, or, or else I figured out what the rules were or something better. Yeah. I don't think I ever did a good job on it, but it was just, it, it became something I had not intended it to be. And that was, that's, you know, half of, why write something if you know what it's going to be beforehand? So a, <laughs> so a significant part of the attraction of the story is discovering it as, as it as it unfolds before you sort of thing? Oh, yeah. I think I think if you know what's going to, if you write one of these, you know, massive outlines, I think you, you, you kill everything. The whole... Um, the whole fun is is having it suddenly open up and and, and walk away and you know um, and become something 
It's just, and, and I think if you know it ahead of time, it's too simple to, it doesn't satisfy a reader as much. But uh, I'm, I'm in this for me. I, I love doing it, and I love doing it when it, um, it, it gets up and starts talking back to me. But but when you're doing a, an actual historical novel like um, I don't know, go back to uh, Jerusalem or the Fire Drake and that sort, of, you're pretty much constrained about what you can do with the characters. You well, have yeah, it looks like that, but it isn't mm-hmm. really because you still have to have a story, mm-hmm. and the story in in these is always almost always some kind of private story, and getting that to work is in the in the cage of the of the historical data is. It's really, it can be really difficult, but it's really, really fun because, you know, you've got to satisfy all these other criteria, but then the story has to be a real story, you know, with beginning and end and middle. History doesn't have beginnings or ends. It's just a, a right. one middle after another. It's kind of like writing a sonnet. You're, you're given a <laughs> form, but you have to write a poem within those restrictions. Right, yeah. But that's what makes sonnets fun, so. Well, I guess. But then what well, att- attracts you to sort of writing a historical novel if you're going to end up creating a significant portion of the story yourself? Is it the intrinsically interesting aspect of the historical period, or...? Well, you know, I don't know. I've been doing this for a long time, mm. you know. And I think at first it was the fact that I didn't have any real stories, that I was a little kid. I started yeah. when I was, like, 12. Hmm. And... Um, uh, these were real stories I could tell, and so I stuck with that and stuck with that. But um, also, there's there's something there's there's a wonderful kind of uh, uh, resonance in history when you can. That's what Guy does in this book. Yeah. What is uh, the um, when you find a period that works in the way you want it to work, it's uh, very uh, useful, and I think uh, reflects a lot on our own time. Well, that stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it has to reflect to some extent on our own time. Well, you mentioned Guy's new novel, uh, Guy Kay's novel, River of Stars, uh, which, which you've read, so what do you think of it? Oh, I, I think it's his best book. I really, really enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was a big book, um, and um, I had, had to finish it before my operation because I knew I wouldn't be able to write the review after the, while I was, mm. you know, laid up. But um, so I really kind of rushed through it, but I really, really enjoyed it. It's a um, um, very enormous book. It's got a huge scope, and at the same time, it's got that kind of precision and uh, mannerist and stylistic thing he loves to do. And so it's it's just very dramatic. It's very, very interesting, and the history is really great. You know. Well, I have to admit, I mean, when I started reading the book earlier, uh, what about three weeks ago? No, two weeks ago, and I was immediately swept up by it from the you know, the introduction of the opening characters uh, right through, and I f- probably found it his most immediately compelling book to date, as much as I've enjoyed his work in the past. Um, that was my reaction. Yeah. Also. I, go ahead, no, go Cecilia. On. No, you finish your thought. I was just going to say I was. I found myself. No, I, 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 I think he really. I think part of it is you know, uh, China's perfect for him. It's this enormous past and huge canvas and it has this very stylized court type stuff and, and all this stuff, uh, calligraphy and poetry and all this, which he can use as kind of, you know, um, 
uh, a framework for a lot yeah. of it. And at the same time, it's got really, really good history. It's really, really broad. And mm-hmm. and also, I th- I honestly think narrative bores him. I think yeah. um, he he may have been bored with narrative by the time he was done with Lions. Um, he at, at the beginning of Under Heaven. You think of the beginning of Under Heaven. What a splendid chapter that is. Yeah. Yeah. But by the end of Under Heaven, he's, the narrative is somehow forced him into telling a story he doesn't want to tell, and, and you know it, it doesn't it doesn't end all that well. Although I think the beginning chapter is just stupendous. Um, but in this book, he doesn't have to do a lot of narrative. It's all operated in a series of spaces, in which yeah. you know he can exactly control the meanings. And it's that's why it has that incredible depth. Also, it, it, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of structure that goes into this. It was just, it's a really artfully done book. But uh, mostly, I think he's finally found the subject that um, will t- let him do what he wants to do. You mean in, in, in the subject matter of China? Because China is, for American readers, uh, almost as alien as. And you're talking about Song Dynasty China in this particular. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it might as well be a fantasy world for most American readers. I mean, unless we want right. to go through his, you know, uh, sources and uh, his, his acknowledgments and look these things up, this is a world as alien as anything. Well, maybe not as alien as anything Tolkien came up with, but as alien as a lot of the fantasy novels we've read. Right. He's got the um, the framework. Of... I'm sorry. Mm-mm. No, you're, just getting, you're just getting some echo on the line for a second, Cecilia. Hopefully, it will clear up. But you were saying about yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think I think uh, I, I think he wants a world where he can um, tune out all the noise. You know, where in this particular China, you know, everything, every gesture has some kind of shape. Everything is prescribed. Everything is choreo- choreographed. And mm. at the same time, you have this wild, furious action outside, which is threatening it. But the threat is to this, you know, kind of perfect world. And the irony, of course, is the perfect world is awful. It's this, not awful, but the perfect world is so artificial it doesn't connect. Like the Emperor's Garden at the center of this of this tremendous city, Kaifeng, which he calls, what, Hinjong, yeah. um, uh, which is made to be the real world. But it isn't the real world, and the real world is destroyed to build it. You know, when That's, they knock uh, down bridges. Yes, I was going to say that was one of my favorite images, and I've forgotten already what the name of that um, a, a squad is or a legion. The the, the, the people who the, up the rocks bridges. and flowers. Yeah, no. rocks and flowers. Yes, um, I loved uh, it. Yeah, I, I love that too. That's actually one of my favorite parts of the novel. Maybe not central to the to the narrative, as you say, but it essentially describes uh, a well. Uh, courtiers to the emperor who spend enormous amounts of time and effort and and lives dragging gigantic rocks and gigantic trees into the <laughs> emperor's garden. And I thought, well, this is this is an emperor we're supposed to sympathize with because the emperor himself is an interesting, not a major character really, but a very interesting one because he's not a bad guy. He's just a good argument against. Making putting poets in charge of things. <laughs> well, I think right, now, yeah, no, he, he's a great poet, great calligrapher, and you know, and, and, and they they uh, do exactly what he wants, but they also don't let him know anything. And um, but he's this this artificial world inside the real world that um, is supposed to keep the real world from coming apart, but he's really tearing it up as he goes. 
Um, the, I love the the nightingales in the gold cages with jewels on them, and yeah. um, and it's a great introduction to um, to the hero of the book um, because you know he has his little moment of crisis there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think you're right; he is well, a I hero. Well, was really good. I love the way he did that. Well, one of the things I liked about it, and I found it. Um, I, it's my favorite of his books, and, and Guy knows I've not read all of his books, but I like this uh, considerably better than I liked Under Heaven. And part of the yeah. cl- part of is the clean line of the hero's narrative. It is, in one sense, a classic hero tale, the classic life of yeah. a hero narrative. Um, but then, he, the, the, my favorite character in the novel is not the hero. It's it's the it's the poet. It's uh, Li Shan. Yeah, yeah, she's wonderful, and but she's a classic. Also, a classic guy heroine. She's um, she's trapped inside a a stylized or expectations of of the outside world, but inside it, she manages to have quite a good life, and and she's mm-hmm. very happy, and she's very uh, um, she gets what she wants. Um, but there's also there's a couple other women who are uh, another aspect of this woman. It, 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 guys also, I think, very fascinated by. Uh, women who have power, and there are a couple of really nasty women in this. Mm. Oh, there's an absolute and, Lady Macbeth in this novel. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. And, and um, I, it, I think he, I think it's his sense that, you know, deprived of a of a uh, you know a valid way to express themselves, they turn into these harpies. Mm. But Lynn Tron doesn't do that. She's she's really she's really marvelous. I think she's also, uh, you know, she struck me as being the sort of character that immensely appeals to um, 21st century readers. Uh, it, it, because she seems like a very almost contemporary character in the sense that she's uh, she, she's well-educated, cultured. She's has, in a sense, a great deal of uh, power that appears to come from you know, her own intrinsic abilities and her unconventional background. And that seems to be something else which helps to open this story up to me to modern readers who are going to encounter it. I think that's very true. I think that that touches on something that about women's roles in many of these stories. You said this was a classic uh, hero's uh, life, but Mm. that in in a a story which is so framed by masculine virtues and masculine, uh, you know, values and all that, a woman is much freer, in a sense. The woman character, you're freer to let her express that kind of being outside, you know, the web kind of thing. And I think she does do that. Uh, the poems, the use of the poems in this is beautiful. Mm. Didn't you that find that? Other, yes. Yeah. I, 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 and it's one of the things that I frequently don't do, and this is one of the things that I think may be a distinguishing mark between a good big fantasy novel and a less good big fantasy novel. I usually, when I come across a poem in a fantasy novel, think, I'm, I, I, here's a page I don't have to read. I've saved myself some time. <laughs> I would yeah, go further, Gary, and say, here's a page I'm eager not to read. Well, you said, well, Gary, I'll have to send you a, a code list next time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which poem you're supposed to read. But I think, you're, I think you're right. Some of these poems, I don't know which are which, because I don't know about Song Dynasty poetry. Some of them uh, look very original. Some of them sound very authentic. But they all actually are of a piece in terms of the narrative. They really do add yeah. something. They're important. Um, yeah, this is I, part of this whole thing that I get from this, that he's getting more and more confident in this. He really 
Um, I hit his stride with this book, and, and I don't mean that he didn't. His previous books are wonderful, you know. They, he's very, even though we've been, you know, downing under heaven. I mean, there's parts of it that are so wonderful that it's it's uh, it's well worth. Yeah, well, I have to say, I would come, but, I would come in in defense of Under Heaven a little bit because I mean, I read it. In fact, the, the last time the three of us spoke, uh, we would have just seen Guy not long after the book came out because it came out in what, October right, of 2010. Yeah. To each other, right? And I'd read it. Um, several months before and at that time i yeah. thought it was one of the best books of his that i'd read possibly only matched by tagana which i've got a great affection for and i th- yeah i can't help but feel there's an awful lot of that book that is also incredibly in- accomplished and so when we sit here and go yes. well it's nowhere near as you know river of stars is much much better than under heaven um it's not really quite fair to that book and it's also i guess worth making clearer just how much of a a response to under heaven it is, or an echo of under heaven it is, in a way. The fact that the, the history quite neatly uh, echoes it. The fact that the uh, traumatic events in under heaven are still echoing through 400 years later in River of Stars, even though you don't need to read them; they're unrelated in that sense. And that gives yeah, it all. Uh, he mentions. Yeah, yeah there's the, some allusions the, the to the early fourteenth yeah. or something. Yeah, and I think that gives oh. a lot of a- additional resonance. Yeah, he he's a he's a quite a um, interesting writer. He's very ambitious. Mm. You know, he, there's a, you know, uh, um, writer, cheap writers try to please the reader and sort of, you know, seduce him into reading it. But really good writers make you read the book their way, and he makes you do that. And um, I felt myself slipping into the book within pages. And um, then I just thought, well, you know, this is fun. And um, And he's He's going to make it mean something. He's got this huge thing. The song, everybody knows what happens to the song. And uh, so making it upbeat at the end is not going to be easy. No. And, um, but he manages to do it in, I think, a very witty way. I think the ending is really good. Mm. I know it, it's a little um, unexpected, but I think it's a wonderful ending. Yeah, we can't talk too much about that because the book, I think, comes out in April and people. No, of course no, not. No. But it's a great but, but but it it does do it, it does do that. I mean, it it does. It's very satisfying um, in the end, and it does have this epic scope. I mean, it achieves the epic scope he wants. There are illusions throughout the book, and this is this is a technique which, I, Cecilia, you know very well. But I'm always a sucker for it for to just be an offhand remark that later writers would say that. And, yeah. And, and so oh, that's the part of the whole narrative. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 yeah, he does this thing with time. He goes back and forth in time. So often in the same paragraph, he'll mention three different layers of time. He's got uh-huh. the present and the memory and the foresight over and over and over, and it gets you this incredible richness, the feeling yeah. that you're, you know, you're going through an oceanic world and where everything is, is uh, there's just enormous amounts of stuff around you, and it's just really, really good. It's a beautiful thing. Do you think that's think, the, that's the benefit that he gets from writing, uh, t- taking history as the source of what he's doing, rather than just simply making it up wholesale? I mean, there's a th- there yeah, can I be a thinness so. to fantasy novels or worlds sometimes that this doesn't have. Yeah, I think that's true. I think he um, he knows that. Uh, for one thing, there's a little edge you get from basing it on real history, which is that you know, real history doesn't have to make sense because it happened. So you get that little tiny kink that makes things seem totally real because they just don't make sense. And um, uh, like the the army that forgets to take the siege engines. 
Yes. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. I mean, or uh, there. And also, you have the terrific weight of time. You know, the the thing he did with uh, the great city in the West, uh, Xenon, Xenon, yeah. which is Xeon, I think, and where she goes out there to find something for her husband's collection of, of relics, antiques. And this is a guy who's collected. They've collected it together. She goes out to Xenon. And it's this huge, half-abandoned city with enormous prospects. And it's like a, a city built for giants. And you just feel the whole weight of the time behind yeah. all that. And I think he, that, that was one of the things that he did just really well in this book. I think another thing that I liked in terms of getting the other, uh, the, the other characters, there, the, again, there's a large cast of characters. Not excessively large, but there are minor characters that are very memorable, like the Lady Macbeth yeah. figure we talked about. But the other thing which I think is very important, and probably more important um, if, in, in fiction that has some historical echoes, is that there are opportunity after opportunity to set up a, a, a villainous set of bad guys, basically. Just yeah. say the, the characters who are essentially the Mongols are... Are, are the bad guys and they're threatening, you know, our, our, our kingdom. But but then we have chapters within within their points of view and chapters within points of view of the warring tribes in the north, so that to some extent you understand the motives of all of the different factions in this. I think so. I think it's really is. It, he's very uh, the 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 blind prime minister who negotiates everything at a distance is just absolutely mm -hmm. wonderful. And of uh, and, and there are the mine, all the the, the uh, peasant characters are great, and mm -hmm. it's just a really good book. But you've written characters. You, you, I mean, yeah, the reason I mentioned the business about the the Mongol hordes kind of thing, the barbarians from the north, that's virtually a cliche in fantasy. It's virtually a cliche in historical fiction. And even when I was back reading, oh, I don't. Well, I, 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 I no. I'll tell you some writer that you and I have talked about before that made me realize they had a point of view too. Was was I think Harold Lamb? Yeah, I love Harold Lamb. Well, Harold Lamb was great, but he would he would write, you know, novels or historical novels or novelistic histories, whatever they were, from the point of view of characters like Tamerlane, who in our traditional Western narrative were just the barbarians from the north. They were just not right, interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, well I think that's one of the one of the things you do with any kind of history. That's why I think uh, the fact that you find this a totally alien world is wonderful because uh, the world of the song. Because that's what what good writers try to do. They try to make everything seem new, and uh, even our own world, you know, can be made to seem new in um, in the hands of a really good writer. And it, mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, but history always is. Um, there's always something unexpected, and it, it gives you a nice, solid framework for making things happen, and it gives you ideas. A, a lot of these characters are drawn from real life, mm -hmm. or from from history. And I mean, in real life and history, not the same thing. But um, uh, they're they're stories that he collected, and that he's that he he's internalized. He's he's made mm -hmm. into his own the history of his own world. I mean, um, this is his world. So, well, we've had conversations uh, with him, and, I, and we unfortunately Guy is not with us, so we have to uh, try to represent his point of view. But there was a wonderful roundtable discussion that you and he did that was published in Locus a couple of years ago. Yeah, about I this, that. 
yeah, the, the whole business of fictionalizing history and to some extent his his sense of ethics that you should not try to represent the thoughts and feelings of historical characters because you don't know. But to some extent, what you just described is exactly what I think any novelist does, no matter how historical the material or not, uh, which is that you have to make your own world of it. Uh, yeah. And the reader has to recognize that. Yeah, uh, well, that's what, he, what's, that's what readers want. They want you to... to um, slam them to the ground and steamroller them into some other world. They, they want to be taken in and uh, made to live somewhere else. And uh, really, the really good, I mean, uh, the great fantasies all do that. And the great novels all do that. It's uh, um, why, we, why we tell stories. We tell stories because we're sick to death of reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well... Let me ask one question. I mean, Guy has taken two famous characters from the Song, or, or you know, figures from the, the, the Song Dynasty. He's recast them in this compelling novel uh, that's set, you know, what is it, uh, a thousand years ago. What do you think that he's gained by casting it as fantasy rather than as history? Well, he's got more control. Um, the fantasy elements in this are not dominating. Uh, there's a, a uh, there are spirits. There's a lot of, of, of spiritual uh, contact. There are ghosts. There are some, there are ghosts. Yeah, but they're, mm. the, they, they are... Hmm? There's a pretty powerful exorcism on it, which I didn't see coming. Yeah, yeah, there's an exorcism. There's a... But, uh, what it is is he's made these people... They, it, it, this is the way people thought. Yeah. And that's what he's done. He's allowed their the world of their values, the world in which their values actually exist, to, to be this uh, subjective, you know, uh, other world outside, the, you know, whatever you want to call it, magical, mm -hmm. realist kind of world. Mm -hmm. And there is the encounter with the fox, which I thought was wonderful. And what leads to one of the most beautiful love scenes I've ever seen in my it life. It really is. And read yeah, in my it's, life. It's, it's, it's terrific. And um, is, um, you know, there, there's a lot, but the, the history is, is uh, he wants to show that there's a world in which uh, I think you can be honorable, that even when mm. it's corrupt, and it's certainly corrupt, you can still be honorable and, and get through it. And... Also, he wants to uh, show you how the world works. That's why the ironies of the ending work, because mm -hmm. you knew that was going to happen. I think the um, I think you're right that honor and integrity are are two of Guy K's continuing themes, probably mm. throughout his career. Um, and and he doesn't make it easy. He doesn't make it an easy choice because the. I suppose the central choice, and I don't think I'm giving anything away here because I'm not referring to, but there is a central crucial choice that the hero makes late in the novel, which is going to be excruciating to many readers because they're going to be readers yeah. shot. No, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but um, there but are, the, the whole thing is set up as a series of choices for mm -hmm. Ren Dayan. Yeah. He, he, does, he makes choices all the way along, and each time his choice is guided by his sense of honor and by his dedication to recovering the lost part of this country. And yes. that single-mindedness is what moves him through all these things. And in the end, I think 
that same single-mindedness is there in, in the end and in, the, and in all the, every choice he makes. Well, here's I one think of that's the, what Guy wants to do. Yeah. I think it's, it's what he wants to do. And I think uh, one of the things that fascinates me about Guy, um, and he can <clears throat> respond to this some, next time we talk, he, he he lists the he, he lists the bibliography. He gives you he tells you this is a Song Dynasty. He basically tells you who these characters are based on. He gives you every opportunity to double check the historical facts, and in so doing, he's inviting you to know basically what the denouement of the story is going to be. And yeah. and he's and he keeps to that as well. And he doesn't he doesn't decide he's going to change history. And he's done this consistently. No, 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 he, no. He wouldn't do that. No, he he, he wouldn't do that. So. So the freedom he gets is I was trying to think of an analogy, and here's here's see see what you think about this, that um, that what he's doing with the Song Dynasty is is not reinterpreting it, but remaking it in his own words in a way the in a way similar to what Ezra Pound did when he was quote unquote translating <coughs> from yeah. languages he couldn't even read like China or, or the Seafarer, which was the you know the the, the Anglo-Saxon poem. Where he would basically try to recreate that from within his within his own psyche, um, rather than yep. literally translate anything. Yeah, I think that's part of what it is. You can't literally translate things. Mm. I mean, I, uh, uh, part of the fascinating thing about the Chinese language, you know, is that it's really pictures, mm. and um, so you get this, at least from what I've seen of it, and I certainly don't know it anywhere near as well as Sky does, a sense of of real. Thinginess about the words that mm -hmm. I don't shouldn't think you get in in our language, and so how can you translate something like that? But you can make a world in which the things you feel are available to people in the West, which is you know you and me, and in which you you are accessing that stuff, and I think that's what he's doing. I agree. Well, one of the things that, yeah. that, that raises... Oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go. I'm just sighing. Well, I'm getting, <laughs> I, I have a headache. Slightly different Unless Jonathan wanted to... Well, I guess the main thing I was going to say, because it's occurred to me for some time, partly, I guess, because I've had the pleasure, as you had, of spending time with Guy, a lot of his approach to this strikes me as a gentleman's agreement with himself. As much as anybody as I know, he strikes me as a gentleman. And that this whole idea of respecting historical characters by not casting them in your books and then making up invented emotional lives for them seems to me uh, an act of respect to history or an attempt to be an act of respect to history and those historical figures whilst also casting him free to be able to do what he wants to or able to, to to interrogate events and to open the story up and to make it a more dramatic engaging thing than maybe he could do otherwise if he were going to restrict himself to what he strictly knew. Yeah, well, that's why that's why we do this. If we stuck to what we strictly knew, if we were, you know, academic historians, the book would be like three pages long or something. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, that's uh, that's the test. You bring it inside, you know, and he's um, he is um, um, almost monk-like in his devotion. He's a very devoted devoted to his work, and, um, and I think he sees it as a vocation. I would not be surprised if he would use that word. Mm. I think that, um, well, one of the things that I think interests me about this is um, a point that 
there's a relationship between historical fiction and fantasy which has never been fully articulated and um, and my argument my my discussion with with both you cecilia and with guy is that if he he has this ethical sense about not using historical characters um and yet you have novelists like Hilary Mantel who have no compunctions about writing very good novels about historical characters. My, my reaction is whatever it takes to get you to write a good novel is pretty much fine with me. Um, but it does raise the question of, of whether, uh, a question similar to one that Paul Kincaid raised in an essay last year in which he was questioning a couple of contemporary uh, stories that were included in, in Year's Best Fantasy and Science Fiction which would be set in medieval Europe, for example, or in some imaginary realm that that didn't need to be a fantasy. And yeah. that always comes up. Does this need to have fantasy in it if it's a history novel, or does it need to have history in it if it's a fantasy novel? No. Um, I, I, think, I think part of the problem is that, you know, the real lockdown uh, rationalism of the modern world excludes everything that can't be measured. But uh -huh. old cultures don't do that. Old cultures, there's meaning in the rocks. There's a tree, if you uproot it, boy, the whole empire comes down. Yeah. And this is what he's getting to, is this, the, not only the, the, um, um, the connectedness of everything, but the fact that there's meaning throughout everything. And when the emperor screws up, that's what he's done. He's He's lost his connections, and he's lost his sense of the meaning of everything. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is what I mean. Happened. So, so that would that would be one answer to how fantasy works into this: is that the fan if if what we now consider the fantastic is a legitimate yeah. part of the worldview of characters, and and this is what yeah. you did. You know, you've done this with Vikings and others. Gene Wolfe did this with his uh, Cretan uh, novels, the Soldier of Sidon novels. Right. Um, and to some extent. If you don't represent the fantastic within those worldviews, you're actually misrepresenting the historical record. Is that Yeah, fair? I think so. Like the exorcism of this, which is, you know, I mean, uh, really is an astonishing piece of work. Uh, they believe it's working, and, and so it is working. And how can you sit back and say, no, nah, it wasn't working? No, I mean, it just, it's, you have to accept their values in order to understand their story. But then there are people who would argue that that is a definition of magic realism. That's very close to Garcia Marquez's definition yeah. of magic realism as magic that exists because the people in the story believe in it. Right, yes, I think that, that may, that, that, that's an interesting, uh, but, but all stories are like that. All stories have their own inner structure and their own inner things that belong to them, and finding that is what the story is, you know. <coughs> I don't think, you know, you look at Faulkner, my God. Well, yeah, that's another good example. I mean, Faulkner comes as close to magic realism as you can come sometimes <laughs> without uh, actually... <coughs> well, so, somewhere between magic realism and stream of consciousness modernism, and you don't know which is which from time to time. Um, I was well, going to say maybe one the, thing. Maybe it's the, the label thing is you know, gets in the way. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is very comforting about talking about Guy's work is that we can call it fantasy. He calls it fantasy. Fantasy readers read a lot of it. The fact that there's not a lot of material fantasy in it, um, or that the plot doesn't hinge on elements of material fantasy, doesn't seem to bother anybody. <coughs> no. 
I think that's um, I think you accept a lot because uh, because he's just so good at keeping it all going. Yeah. And um, and and he's endlessly um, true to it. You know, he doesn't ever slipshod anything. And um, so that, you know, he just keeps you going constantly with it. I guess one of the things I was going to say that uh, one of the things that he is concerned about is the ethics of using historical characters, which hasn't bothered me. But there was a book I actually didn't finish, and I don't think it was because the book was bad. It was because it made me uncomfortable. Uh, one of the examples the guy has used is Joyce Carol Oates' novel about uh, Marilyn Monroe, Blonde, uh, which I did not read, and I don't know much about Marilyn Monroe. But there was a novel that came out last year by Paul Malmont who's an enjoyable um, writer. He'd done an earlier novel called The Chinatown Death Cloud Massacre. This is a novel called The Astounding, The Amazing, and The Unknown, in which one of the, char the characters are Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov. And it's it, in some ways, it's a hoot. But at one point, early on in it, he speculates on Isaac Asimov's sex life. Mm. <laughs> it's something I never, ever wanted to think about. <laughs> Yeah, too much information. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing. And I felt like, this is, no, this is, I, 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 probably a 14-year-old figuring out that his parents have sex. I don't know what the reaction was, but I don't want to know this. I don't want to have this speculation. I want Isaac Asimov to be out there as I thought of him. <laughs> well, keep his pants on. Yeah, keep his pants on. It's, it's, it's the sort of thing that would have mortified him as a person. And... When, I remember when I was reading that, and I literally did not finish the book, not because it was a bad book, but because I became uncomfortable, and I realized I became uncomfortable for exactly the, re, the reason Guy described uh, that he was uncomfortable in novels like, like Oates' right. Blonde. Um, but would you be less uncomfortable if it was 300 years hence, and Isaac was 300 <laughs> years dead? Because exactly. that, that's the historian's question, isn't it? It is. Well, um, question. I, I don't know. That's... I was, I well, ask, go ahead, Cecilia. I was going to ask you. Well, there is, is something really odd about having Nixon in books. Yes. Yeah. And, okay. Um, you know, it it because I re, I remember seeing him in real life. You know. Well, is that the question? Well, that that's the whole question of taking things which happened within our own lifetimes and then casting them as being historical events, isn't it? You know. Yeah. When does it become history? Yeah. I, I suppose when you have to read about it. Well, I begin to see uh, – well, and, and you see that I mean, uh, with the latest Michael Chabon novel, Telegraph Avenue, where events from the 70s are now history. Uh, and it won't be very long yeah. till events from the 80s are now history in novels. I'm sure they are already, and I've just not seen them. And you sit there kind of going, that feels almost contemporary, but it's got a touch of history. They haven't yet become historical in some sense. But I'm uncomfortable about it at my age. So uh, – yeah. And then there's a certain comfort, comfort that I mean, like the, the Song Dynasty might as well be uh, Middle Earth, in, mm -hmm, in yes. a way, as we've said before, uh, and the, the Tang Dynasty with um, Under Heaven. Whereas, yeah. you know, if someone was like, we're going to cast a fantasy novel uh, in 1970, I think we'd still tend to look at it as this urban fantasy kind of thing as being tr cast as current, but sitting on an uncomfortable edge. Yeah. Well, I think their historical fantasies are uh, one of the things I think the fantasy world fantasy literature, fantasy writers have, have used very conveniently is this kind of oriental settings. Um, there are any number of fantasy novels I can think of that are sort of 
sort of vaguely set in medieval Japan or, or medieval China, without specifying a dynasty, without specifying any particular historical period. I mean, and some of these are very good novels, like uh, Barry Hugart's you know, Bridge of Birds, for yep. example. Um, but to some extent, isn't that simply appropriating a culture for its exoticism and saying, as you said, this might as well be Middle Earth. Nobody really knows much about medieval China, so I'll just do anything I want to there. Well, you know, the whole problem with, with fantasy is that it's all derivative. You know, you can't, yeah. we could not make up a totally fantasy world. Nobody would be able to un- understand what you're talking about. It has to be, there has to be some way to, for people to enter into it. And the ways are that it reminds you of something else. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it, I mean, I'm sure you guys go on and on about all of these things are, are mm. reminding We go on and on. <laughs> Period. And, um, uh, uh, it's um, uh, that's the problem I had with it, you know. Um, it it's too for me. It's it's too relative, and so I, I, although <laughs> I'm writing one now, I said you know that isn't relative. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, any, but forget about all that. But um, um, there's some there's this problem with fantasy, and and you find some other system and you can use it. Uh, to as a skeleton, and a, a lot of people do that. I mean, uh, Harold Lamb did it. And, yeah. Uh, Shakespeare did it. Oh yeah, I was going to say the worst example of of, of abusing historical figures is is, is probably Shakespeare. Uh, oh yeah. Who simply would never let the historical record get in the way of what he wanted to do. Oh no, yeah. And, which has been in the news the last week with the you know with the uncovering of Richard the Third. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and which always brings all the historians out of the closet saying he wasn't the guy that you saw in Shakespeare so he wasn't that bad <laughs> <laughs> whereas yeah, you know yeah. that no one's going to leap well it's very unlikely that here in the west at least anybody's going to uh, leap out from under a rock and start contradicting Guy the only thing no. <laughs> the only thing that I yeah, guess you, you, yeah but I don't think I think he's really uh, he really knows his stuff upside and downside anyway he, he that's what's unusual about it is that for me is that he really really knows all this um, and it comes through that he doesn't have to uh, force anything everything happens in a very natural uh, the way it would uh, in in your own world and um, so that it doesn't have the kind of uh, jarring notes you can get sometimes in in in, in lesser work, where you know. Well, he just, plays uh, by his, he plays with the net up to use a, a completely different phrase that Gregory Ben produced about science fiction. But um, I think that what he's doing uh, by letting us know how carefully he's researched this is he's telling us, okay, this is the net I've set up. I'm going to work within these rules, but within these rules. I can compress chronologies, I can rearrange things a little bit, I can change characters' names, but I'm still going to follow this basic pattern of rules. He cannot change the outcome, really, of what happened to the Song Dynasty, according to the rules that he set up for himself. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think you need rules. That was one of the things my first uh, real teacher just said. You know, whatever, you have some rules. It doesn't matter what they are, but if you have them, it'll give you some <laughs> shape. Uh, and, it, and he's chosen excellent rules. Is it your feeling that Guy's done with China? I, I couldn't help but feel it. That, no, that, no, that, no, I don't think so. I think he'll do more. I mean, I, I don't think... It's a perfect world for him. Yeah. See, I, I don't think that he overtly knows or not whether he he will, but the, the way he's come back to River of Stars and the way 
and I have a very coarse understanding of uh, Chinese history. The way Chinese history seems to evolve over a vast tract of time with so much happening and so many echoes and evolu you know, uh, evolutions through time. It gives him that perfect tapestry to play with. So, yeah. There's always another story. Mm. Which, and which, the more he knows about it, the more um, um, it will take him over, kind of, and, and use him, which is what you know we all want to do. Mm -hmm. Be an instrument to your glory. So yes, a fine and wonderful book. It's, it's well, one of the things that I, ironically, I, the reason I was always fascinated by Chinese history was my fifth grade history teacher gave us a textbook, which I should I should tra track this down because it's decades ago, of course. Um, and the, it, was, it was a world history, which you get in the fifth grade in the United States, at least in Missouri, that began with the history of China. It began with uh, and, and the whole thesis of this book. I now realize this is a high school history book that had a thesis. The whole thesis of this history book was that Americans are taught nothing about non-Western history. Um, and so we went through, I mean, all, I, all I remember about it is there was some stuff about Confucianism and there was a lot of book burning going on at this one point. Um, <laughs> but it's, but it, and I later found out, oh yeah, this all fits into a pattern. And, and, and I think to some extent there is an exoticism to that history because it's so old, it's so different, it's so formalized, it's so recorded in different ways that as we've said three or four different ways now, it might as well be another planet. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, 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 I thought it was amusing what you said about how we, we aren't taught anything. You remember the Durants did that huge 12-volume history of civilization yeah. in which the entire Orient was packed into one volume. Mm. I mean, that's right. the way we've, we've always thought of it, is that they're over there somewhere, but real history is over here. Right. And, of course, they've always had more people, and they did a lot more there uh, than we were doing in Europe. And, um, and they had an enormous impact on Europe, and Europe had an impact on them. And, and I mean, now, of course, still one world anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and of course, I mean, we're neatly synopsizing, we're referring to the Tang Dynasty, the Song Dynasty, and we're talking about you know, 300 year periods of history that are 400 years apart. So there, yeah. there, there's a vast scale for, or scope for things to happen within them. And some things which oh, we're yeah. sort of vaguely familiar with, I mean, you know, the whole thing to do with. Mongol hordes and the Khans and all that in the background of all of this. It all just sweeps through. But we, we in the West know very little about it, really. Generally. Well, we know, we know some, some of the you know, sensational movie stuff. Yeah. Like um, Genghis Khan because of the infinite numbers of movies. And Was that the one well, Jack Palance hmm? Jack Palance played Genghis Khan in one movie. I can't remember the title. And he played Adler the Hun. <laughs> I love right. okay. called Sign of the Pagan. He was John. Okay. He was John Wayne. Which I saw when I was like eight. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm very sure formative in my. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Gary that it was actually John Wayne who played Genghis Khan in one of the yeah, worst things ever done. The okay. Conqueror, I think yes. it was called. Oh, okay. Which yeah, is a fairly but, appalling idea. <laughs> well, but still, that's that's the notion. I mean. Uh, I, I think one of the things that is, is probably true about Chinese history and Oriental history, Japanese, Vietnamese, Mongolian history in general, is that we don't, we, we, when we get movies, we get movies that simply translate them into into, into Westerns. Westerns, yeah. <laughs> and American, I don't know, uh, Cecilia, you know a lot, because I know you. I've read, in addition to writing a lot of historical fiction, 
by and large, English and American historical fiction hasn't paid a lot of attention to China or Japan either, has it? I mean, I'm trying to think of outside of what James Clavell and uh, what was oh, what's the one I'm thinking of, the the huge bestseller. Uh, yeah, the that, Shogun and and Shogun, uh, uh, yeah. the, what's his name? What's his name? Uh, Shogun was Clavell, wasn't it? Japanese, but they did a Chinese one too. Because he did King Rat. What was his name? That was Clavel. Clavel. That was yeah. Clavel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, made a made a fortune. Right, he made it, but but it was like a one shot uh, his, history, and um, I don't know. Did Thomas B. Costain write anything in the Orient? I don't know. I don't think. <laughs> Who knows? I try to forget Thomas Costain. <laughs> Thomas, um, yeah. Frank, you. Uh, I mean, uh, Frank Yerby, I don't know. He might have. He Frank Yerby did a lot of and. I think it's really, really, in many ways, a really much more interesting writer than anybody gives him credit for. But um, I, I don't think so. I think, for one thing, there was no way to access it. I mean, until fairly recently, you couldn't find very much out. Yeah. I mean, there just well, wasn't a lot true. of data. It's yeah. like the Byzantine Empire. Nobody knew anything about it for a long time. Because, you know, no, there wasn't, weren't any records. It's like, damn, I'm having more trouble with this. Never mind. <laughs> no, I can't find data on something, and it's driving me nuts because I can get tantalizing bits, but nothing interesting enough to write about. I, I guess what we started here. No, I was just going to say, do you want to follow up on that because that sounds fascinating? Well, oh yeah, no, it's about the Arab Navy in the Dark Ages, and I can get lots of stuff about the land and about Spain, but it, 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 like. Uh, I mean, these guys were all swarming over the Western Mediterranean. They had pirate uh -huh. nests all over the place. They sacked Sardinia a couple of times, and they, but the, it's it's there, but it isn't there. There's no sources. Huh. It just isn't there. <laughs> and it's very frustrating, mostly because I'm trying to do this as nonfiction. <laughs> I think it's absolutely fascinating that you're that you have problems like that, which I'm sure is one of the very few questions you can put out generally on the internet and not get too many amateur hobbyists to say, I know all about the medieval Arab Navy. I just don't think that. Well, they, of course, they all, they, a lot of people think they, they think nobody they. knows anything. Yeah, well, they, nobody knows anything. It's really, uh, except little, for instance, there was a, uh, this um, pirate's nest on the southern coast of France for 100 years. Of, of Saracen pirates who would go mm -hmm. around and pick off ships and, you know, uh, carry booty off and, and for a hundred years. Wow. And, um, but nothing else. I can't, there's not a name. Not a single name. Really? No. So it's all sort of broad detail and no real primary sources and that kind of thing? It, well, it's, it comes up, this comes up because at one point they, they were foolish enough to ha carry off an abbot of Clooney. Mm -hmm. But once he was ransomed, went back and got a uh, coalition together that included quite a lot of people, including the emperor and the Byzantine emperor and mm -hmm. a couple of other people, went and, and routed him out of it. But um, nothing before that, nothing really very much at all, except the name of the place behind it is called the Mountains of the Moors. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, it's, and there's, there's things like, um, uh, like taking Sicily. Now, it, it, when you start getting into how they took Sicily, it just 
it begins to crumble. They're just, you know, they seem to take it like 15 times. <laughs> and, um, you know, but, but once again, you just don't really have any data. Well, maybe over here, you know, and it's, so it's all very vague. And then the Sardinian thing, but Sardinia is wonderful. You know, I went to Sardinia mm-hmm. once and I was just crazy about it. And it's really old and it was really rich. And it's, they were raiding it from the Balearic like every other year. And I get dates, 815, 817. Not a name. Not a, <laughs> anything. Not anything I could use. Just a damn date. Maybe <laughs> strangle in your own entrails. But let me clarify you're working on a nonfiction piece. Because I'm, I'm, I want to get well, it. Well, I, I had to shelve that. I, that's that's the kind of thing that if it ever shows up, it'll be at one of those online deals. Well, I'm still, but I, I, th- I think that as a historical novelist, I would think having something, some mystery in which there's no documentation, would be just open sesame. I can write anything I want to because nobody knows anything different. Nobody can contradict. But if you're writing a nonfiction well, work, then you're kind of stuck. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I, and I know you've been writing a lot of nonfiction. We should mention that you had uh, a lot of success with Lincoln's Little Girl on, on Kindle Singles. Oh, yes. Um, Everybody should rush out and buy Lincoln's Little Girl, which has done very well. It's, was it's, a it's bestseller cheap. for three and weeks. It's cheap. It's straight. a bestseller, and it's, it's and nobody knows that it's there was cheap. a little girl. 99 cents. You can't afford not to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless. No. Now, unfortunately, we're I should say to you, Gary, I, I disagree, and you, uh, I'd be curious to know what you think about this, Cecilia. I would have thought the lack of detail would be the exact opposite. Rather than open slather, it actually it prevents you from being able to build it all up because there's nothing really there. Is that the frustration of it? That's the problem. You can't say anything. Yeah. You can say, well, there they are over there in Sardinia. <laughs> what are you going to say? <laughs> you can't say. You, you don't have any people that you could present. Like in the beginning, in the first... The beginning of the Arab Navy is it starts with this absolutely wonderful uh, uh, constellation of events that includes the uh, Ali Shiite Shia, Sunni problem. So uh-huh. it's it's a beautiful way to just describe that. And also the the uh, father of the Arab Navy was a uh, a great uh, caliph, the first caliph who wasn't uh, somehow connected to Muhammad, who was uh, uh, Muawiyah and. And he, he's actually uh, in the data. Now, in uh-huh. Arab data, that means a different thing than it does in modern historiography. They're mostly trying to give you moral tales. But he's, he's a character. He's a real person. And then um, as you go west, it's sort of they, these people disappear. And, um, you know, by the time they, they're building ships on uh, the Guadalquivir, the river in there in, in Andalus. Mm-hmm. And um, they're sending them off into the Mediterranean. And by God, they did, they're out there somewhere. <laughs> I can't find them. You can't find them, Lucas. The most, the most detailed and well, uh, well-documented event that happens in this whole time is when a Viking fleet blunders into the Mediterranean and goes yammering around, raiding and burning and getting their asses kicked <laughs> by the, whatever Muslims could find them. And then goes, uh, you know, tearing off again, and that is really well documented <laughs> in the in the in the sagas. But that's that it. Sounds like you a know? good screwball comedy to me. <laughs> it is. Oh, it's, in the it's Gilbert and Sullivan. That's what I think of it as. Yeah, Gilbert and Sullivan, exactly. With cat-like tread. <laughs> and, and is this what so sort of? 
Uh, let me hypothesize this somewhere between what Jonathan was disagreeing with me. What about what seems to me maybe the ideal situation is if there's enough surrounding data, but a lacunae as somewhere in there. There's a bunch of stuff that's missing, but you know what surrounds it, so you can fill in the blanks. Uh, example, uh, and I don't know if you I don't know if you know him, Cecilia, but a friend of of, of Jonathan's and mine is Jack Dan, who wrote a novel oh, really? called The Memory Cathedral. Yeah. And the Memory Cathedral is very cleverly based on the lost years of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh-huh. In other words, we know we know lots and lots of stuff about Da Vinci, except for this one little bit. Yeah. And how could how could any novelist resist that one little unknown bit? Yeah, well, that is. You're right. That's a perfect situation. Um, the other perfect situation is when you have a lot of data, and it all makes sense to you, and nobody else knows it. You know, and yes. you can use it as you wish. Mm. But that's not, as Guy would say, that's cheating. <laughs> Well, a little cheating. Despite the fact that nobody knows it anymore anyway. Yeah. Well, so, right. anyway, how few people know any history. It's just really... Well, that's true. I mean, that, that, that goes back to our original point, which is that, um, you know, somebody um, somebody could pick up any one of your novels, Cecilia, especially when you go back to uh, Vikings or, 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 or figures from Spanish history or, or even, you know, uh, Francis Drake. Well, may, Americans don't know enough history to, to know the difference between that and fantasy. Yeah, I think that's very true, and I think a lot of a lot of people take historical fiction as a, a in, in that same way. I think so. Well, yeah. I, I sometimes think what they're trying to do, the, the readers of it at least, is in some odd way to supplement their education by reading something more palatable. You know, I will end up. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, it's that odd thing. It's like getting your nonfiction sort of. Um, fix whilst having yeah. it hidden, you know, not having to actually, oh. you know, learn something. Yeah. And yet yeah, it doesn't yeah. really do that because nothing can properly. No, uh, I totally well, agree with that. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 You're not going to learn anything if you don't know the difference, you know. <laughs> yes. But the thing is, uh, and Guy K, the, the first long conversation Guy and I ever had, which was ICFA in Florida, was exactly about this, and it was specifically about James Michener. Um, and a little bit about James Mitchell and Tom Clancy of all things. And part of it had to do with the idea that American males, at least, feel that fiction is frivolous, but nonfiction is good. So there's a tradition <laughs> in America, there's an anti-imaginative tradition in America, which favors a certain kind of technological and historical fiction over other fiction. So you could read James Michener, for example, and you're reading Hawaii, and there, the first 60 pages are about the geological history of the islands, and you can tell yourself, I'm learning stuff here. I'm not reading this because yeah. of characters. And God knows when Mitchell's Yeah, I character. think that's very true. Yeah. I think uh, that's, an, it, that's, that's very true. I think uh, there's a, a uh, um, American distrust of um, imagination. I think so. Which may go and, back to the, you know, you know the great, the, uh, the, the story that I always think of about the wild imagination in the American past is, is uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne and young Goodman Brown when, you know, the whole wild forest is out there. You know, you can just imagine anything out there. So you've got to go back into Salem and, and kneel and pray. And, all that. and it's, either in that, it's either in that or the House of the Seven Gables where he talks about the, the wild pumpkins growing up into the governor's garden and taking over the, you know, well, well-managed English garden is being taken over by the... Right, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Overgrowing yeah. everything. <laughs> over everything, yeah. And there's a sense at which, uh, and, and, and the reason I mentioned Tom Clancy is because, you know, 
Tom Clancy, no, you can't, you can't remember a single line of dialogue from Tom Clancy, but I've actually talked to people who said, well, yeah, it's a thriller, but it teaches you how to run a nuclear submarine just in case. <laughs> and it's horrible. It's, and it's terrible. terrible. I read one of those. They're awful. <laughs> they are. Oh. I think there are people for whom that's con- that's consoling, though. That, like it. the Dan Brown, the bad writing of the Dan Brown makes people feel mm-hmm. like you know he's not smarter than they are. Yeah, and, so and, he's not putting one over on them, although he is. <laughs> he is indeed. So, so let me ask. You've mentioned a few times you're working on on this new book. When are we likely to see it? Do you know? Do you have a feeling for it? Um, well, the, 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 the Arab Navy book is something else. The new book that I'm working on is a book that, that David Hartwell talked me into writing about, called, about dragons, from a story. Gary, you remember that story, the dragon story? I do remember. Um, it was in the George Martin anthology, it was right? In, I wrote it for Gardner. Yeah. And Gardner it, was a, it was a lot of fun. It was about a, uh, a, a girl who runs away with a dragon. So, um, and Hartwell's on me to write this book, and I'm thinking, well, you know. And then finally, um, uh, suddenly in a conversation with, of all people, David Drake, I suddenly got an idea for it. And I, um, I emailed uh, Hartwell, and he bought it. So this is called The Dragon's Wife, and it's uh, uh, based on this story, but not but what happens after. And it's fun. It's a, it is straight fantasy. There's, there's almost nothing in it, any kind of history except, um, you know, that there's got to be some kind of uh, sense in the plot. Um, and but it's a lot of fun, and um, the only problem I'm having with it is that they want 110,000 words, <laughs> and, and from you know from me, I mean, you know, 80,000 words is a long book. Although uh, I think, the, I, but, the last Coven book is pretty long. I'm, I, I, so anyway, I, I, I appreciate David's instincts. This will be your first fantasy novel actually marketed as a fantasy novel. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay, now a couple of weeks ago. The SF Gateway, Malcolm Edwards' Galaxy's wonderful, you know, resource of online science fiction novels, had as its featured novel of the week, Floating Worlds. So you've, you've written one science fiction novel which will not die. I mean, it keeps coming yeah, no, back. Like, it's been in print almost continually. It's very nice. I know. Uh, and, and, and people... Well, nobody reads novels, it for some reason. No, People read it, but not necessarily science fiction readers. That's the odd thing. Floating Worlds is one of those odd books, and honestly, Stephen Donaldson's um, um, Lord Charles Bane is another one, that are read widely by people who don't read anything else in the genre. Yeah. yeah I know well, people read science fiction, but they it, know Floating it, Worlds. Yeah, I don't think of it as science fiction. I think of it as kind of history turned inside out. Because it's really, if you, it's a, a history of something that hasn't happened yet. Okay, that's kind of what uh, science fiction yeah. is. <laughs> that's what science fiction is. Yes, actually, yes. Yeah. Yeah. in many ways. Yes. Well, we'll or descriptions of machines that haven't been built yet. Whatever. <laughs> well, as you push towards the distant conclusion of the new book, do you find yourself itching to get back to back to history, or does the Arab Navy stuff f- scratch that itch? I don't know. The, uh, historical fiction has suddenly gotten real weird on me. Um. I, I'm not. I have a project that I, I'm sort of trying to sell, but it it's it feels. I hate to say this because it's going to jinx everything. It feels kind of retread to me. Okay. And but often when I start off on something, it feels very retread. So who knows? I'm, I'm right now. I'm I'm hip deep in dragons and having a very good time. And 
I'd like, like to finish the Arab Navy if I could find the material, which, you know, one good source. All I got to do is find one good source, <laughs> and uh, and I'm in. And um, and I've got other ideas. You know, I'm always thinking about something. Well, if any of our listeners have anything concrete about the Arab Navy, they should contact us and we'll pass it on to you. Let the me med- know. The medieval Arab Navy, folks, you know, Cood Street listeners, we need this information. You're sitting on it. Your grandfather's manuscript up in Northampton probably has it in the basement. You need to go look there. <laughs> right, yes. And With footnotes, please. Yes, with footnotes. Yes. And I guess maybe to bring this full circle, I should probably say that given that the last time the, the three of us, in fact, the four of us, including Guy Kay, were together, was at Columbus, Ohio for World Fantasy. And I suspect the next time we will be together will be in Washington, D.C., or in fact, the distant oh, outskirts yeah. of Washington, D.C., where possibly, hopefully, you'll be able to see the city over the curvature of the earth, unlike Toronto <laughs> last year. Mm-hmm. Um I genuinely suspect that we will be there, and River of Stars will be on the World Fantasy ballot. Then I would be very surprised I'm if it sure wasn't. It will. Oh, I think it will. Yeah, be, I'm sure it will. Yeah, and I'll be there to. I hope to applaud this guy with And maybe then we will have the chance to have dinner and and and, and salute him privately, which would be a wonderful thing. Right. Yes, and he can forgive. And by then, maybe we can talk about the Dragon Girl novel. Yes. Well, it should be out by then. It should be yeah, out. Yeah. Well, then. I have. It's due in October. Yeah. So, uh, okay, it, it may be out of me. It depends on what David does. Well, on that note, then, I'd like to thank you very, very much for joining us today, Cecilia. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank to you for having me. And I hope that maybe sometime we'll get to talk to you again. Maybe maybe in Washington we'll sit down with Guy and chat together about whatever ha- is happening then. Maybe the Dragon Girl book or whatever. But yeah. until, until then. Great. Good. Okay. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. And I will talk to you again next week, Jonathan. Uh, as yeah. always. Okay. As always.